I'm curious how, uh, like, in your world, when does everyone's brain shut down? Uh, you know what I mean? Because it's like this. I'm 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 already in this post holiday Thanksgiving space where I'm feeling myself pulled like into Christmas and into like not paying attention to anything, like trying to put off big projects. And I'm wondering if in your world, something similar happens and when it happens. Yeah. Well, the whole DC policy space really does follow like an academic calendar. Um, and actually, I guess thinking more through it. So like I went to university of Pennsylvania. So in addition to like, academic calendar like jewish holidays also kind of were major points and i think that's also the case in dc as well so like things don't really get rolling until like mid-september then there's thanksgiving then there's christmas like there's only little chunks where people are actually working but then you know there's some people who like working a little too much and they're the ones who are still you know going on into the online trenches like on holidays to do battle talk about generally esoteric policy stuff hard pass on that yeah yeah i mean like one could do that as a way to avoid family and like having you know it's like oh sorry i can't i can't you know come out to grandma's house for the whole week because i i'm the designated you know person that has to be online just in case all hell breaks loose which i have used that before um very helpful (laughs) (laughs) yeah you get to be the the newsroom watcher you're the ghost light in the newsroom on, on on a holiday so you don't have to yeah the little bank light that's flickering, that's me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a weird dynamic um, when I was a junior researcher, like it counts on foreign relations. You know, everyone's trying to get published, get their op-ed out there, but they're normally younger folks for good reason, aren't that credible of voices. But the holidays, you know, that was a moment where you'd shoot your shot, right? Because <laughs> older people have like families and kids whom they hopefully love. Uh, but, you know, you're, 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 you're a grinder in your mid-20s. Uh, young people not being very credible. Will that possibly be a theme <laughs> of this episode? Who's I to say? A little. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm always fascinated by this topic. I think Emily's heard me tell this story 15 times now. Uh, but I worked retail for so long that the holidays still give me anxiety. Like we go into Thanksgiving and like, oh, that's Black Friday. Uh, it's going to be the, my busiest day of the year. And then it's just going to be a nonstop nightmare until the middle of January. And then getting like a, a, like a steady job in news, it's the opposite and everything slows down, but my anxiety remains. Um, and I don't know what to do with it. So I'm always interested to hear who else is just relaxing and not doing much as, uh, the Turkey works through their system. Yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, I would say broadly. Being in a war and social media is not like a recipe to turning off. Maybe that's that explains maybe a lot about my personality then, actually. <laughs> yeah, but that's on you. The posters are, are here. Yeah. Everybody is uh, it's happening. It's all happening. Because I'm going to go home and my mom is going to yell at me for being on the phone too much. I can feel it. I can f- um. But speaking of being on your phone too much, let's actually get into today's, today's topic. <laughs> Can you introduce yourself for us, the audience? Sure thing. My name is Emerson Brooking. I'm a resident senior fellow at the Digital Forensic Research Lab of the Atlantic Council, where I study the intersection of social media and warfare. I'm also co-author of a 2018 book, uh, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. Uh, with Peter Singer, right? Is the co-author? That's right. Yeah. Um, I think we've had on the show before, but anyway, it doesn't matter. So I want to talk to you about this today in part, uh, cause I know Emily, both of our mothers are sending us posts of things that are happening, uh, in, in, uh, the Israel Hamas war. Some of them are outright lies. Um, and I know that this is a thing that you followed for a long time, Emerson, and, and we were, we were wondering, um, what is it about this war specifically that seems to bring out 
the half-truths, the lies, the disinformation? Is it more prevalent than ever, or are we just paying attention? And how do we get our mothers to stop sending us posts? Well, your last question will be the hardest to hit. So we'll maybe filibuster that one. But uh, in general, I think that the disinformation around this conflict really is unprecedented, both in the volume and I, I think also the uh, audacity of some lies, you know, some falsehoods which have been spread, which are clearly intended to drive action in one part of the conflict or another. And the reason for that, um, and why it's even worse, for instance, than the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, is that publics who are deeply sympathetic to either position in the conflict are all parts of the same online spaces. Um, and broadly, the Israel-Palestinian debate is something that's suffused Western and especially American politics for decades. So, of course, as more people have gone online, they've taken that, they've taken their old positions, but they've, they've moved into these new online spaces where they're already prepared to engage even more aggressively with each other. And I guess one point just from the outset, I'm saying different sides of this, in, of this conflict. When I say it's shorthand, I'm often thinking about pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli positions. Obviously, October 7 was a terror attack by Hamas, which represents elements of Gaza, which is not all Palestinian territories, not all of Palestine. And many pro-Palestinian uh, activists are not supportive of Hamas. Indeed, most are not. But I want to draw that distinction because that can often be lost when we talk about one side or another. And I would say that that is one of the probably one of the big broad brush like lies or bits of misinformation is to align um, anyone who is you know, invested in human rights and uh, the plight of the people in Gaza as Hamas sympathizers, right? Absolutely. I mean, this is a a particular tactic that transcends uh, one conflict. We saw in 2020 at the height of the George Floyd protests, a pretty concerted effort on the, by, by the American far right to tie Antifa to uh, terrorism to suggest that they were even supported by foreign terrorist organizations. At the time, I uh, published a analysis of this disinformation campaign with the DFR lab. But of course, this phenomenon also transcends social media altogether. Uh, Vincent Bevan's book, The Jakarta Method, talks about how when different, uh, mostly leftist groups or causes were being marginalized, the first thing one would do would be to associate them with abhorrent political violence or terrorism, with which they were often tangentially connected, if connected at all. Yeah, I think I have a good, uh, my dog is an Antifa super soldier sticker somewhere that a friend of mine made for me and from like, I don't know, 2017, something like that, when all that discourse was happening. Um, yeah, it's, it's always interesting to me, the, the leaps that people will make in trying to connect things that are not really connected at all. So it's it's uh, politics first, facts second kind of information space is, is is what I'm gathering then. It is certainly politics first, facts second, although I would observe that is most online debates. That's That was one of my questions here, actually. Um, is... Like, certainly there's been conflict between Hamas and Israel over the past 20 years. Uh, is it just that this is the first big conflict between the two uh, since we've had really the breakout success of social media? And is this really any different than anything that played out in Syria? And I know you already mentioned it, but but Ukraine and Russia? Is it just that this is something that people in, the West, in America are more invested in? I think the salience of this issue for American audience is a huge factor for why you keep seeing it. Um, actually, to briefly go back to Russia-Ukraine, that was an interesting case because most Western audiences were very sympathetic to the Ukrainian position. Western social media companies were trying to help their Ukrainian users. Um, it was pretty clear where public uh, where the public fell. And also, Russia 
had its own interest in sort of pulling its citizens out of the shared information ecosystem. So there was a sort of um, separation that occurred. There can be no such separation or disentangling from social media of pro-Israeli and pro-Palestinian voices. And I mean, that that is a huge reason that you see this um, still everywhere and all at once. Another important takeaway, which is more straightforward, is that this war is so much bigger than anything before it. More people died in the first two weeks of the conflict than did the entire the entirety of the second intifada. I got interested in social media and warfare actually because of an IDF air campaign against Gaza in 2012. There was another bigger campaign, which included a ground invasion of Gaza in 2014. There were, I think, missile cam- missile strikes and other campaigns in 2017 and 2019 and 2021. We've tracked all of those. But in this one, just the um, strategic surprise that Hamas achieved, the extent of that initial terror attack, uh, the mass killing of Israeli civilians in a way, uh, in a systematic fashion that had actually not even happened in the Second Intifada, and the the propagandistic sharing of it, then um, a retaliatory bombing campaign that uh, per capita has inflicted something like four thousand. Uh, 9-11 attacks on Gaza in the course of a month and a half. All of this is new. And that's why it is just so closely tied now to social media and why if you're even loosely connected to politics on social media, this war, the graphic imagery, the accumulating horror and tragedy is impossible to escape. You were saying that what happened in 2012 on social media was really what got you interested. What was what was going on on social media then? I'm I'm just trying to think back, you know, Facebook was big, Twitter was called Twitter. I don't think we had Instagram or maybe we did, but not very many people were on it. So what was the the draw for you? So in November 2012, the IDF assassinated a Hamas militant leader who had been responsible for some of the school bus bombings of Israelis during the Second Intifada. Um, that wasn't unique. Targeted killings took place quite frequently in this conflict. But what was different was that the IDF also had an infographic ready to go, announcing that they killed this guy. They posted it on Twitter a few hours afterward. Then they posted the drone video to YouTube almost immediately after that. And then that was just the start of the conflict. The IDF announced that they'd be continuing operations. Um, you know, Hamas fighters should run and hide. But at this time, Hamas also had a, just a single public-facing Twitter account, Al-Qassam Brigades. And so they responded in kind. They said, no, you know, we're going to fight you. You've opened the gates of hell. So there was this bizarre war of words that was happening concurrent with the military actions. So in the real world, this ended up being an eight-day air campaign that ultimately it didn't culminate into a a, a ground incursion. But online, um, people dubbed it the first Twitter war because there were about 10 million messages exchanged over these eight days. Some like 92% of them came from outside of the conflict region. And so you saw this intense international attention and engagement in this war of words. And so at the time, I had a broad interest in U.S. defense policy. I had grown up in rural Georgia, so I, which means I'd grown up on the internet before I could drive. Um, and since war is a political exercise, I've been thinking a lot about how war, poli- politics, and social media might intersect. So this seemed just a, a clear case study of that. And Indeed, subsequent analysis showed that the IDF was probably adjusting its airstrike decisions based on the sentiment of Twitter conversation, which is just another like sort of shocking moment. It all feels kind of blasé to say now, but a decade ago, the idea that national militaries would be making or their operational decisions would be influenced by what uh, like Ass Lover 69 was saying on Twitter was like an insane idea. So that was really the start of my interest and then my my book with uh, Peter Singer. So the other thing, 
my next question was literally going to be, does any of this matter? Uh, do any of our shit posts matter? Uh, and it seems like you're saying enthusiastically, yes. Uh, our online conversation does shape the conflict. Yes. I mean, posts mattered more than a decade ago. Today, I, I think it's much more evident that they matter because um, even a platform like Twitter, X, uh, relatively low active user base, but it is so heavily biased toward reporters, toward politicians, toward other political elites. It's arguably the most consequential online platform because on October 7, I, I promise you, most uh, like senior American politicians, most American senators who put out these their initial October 7 statements, they woke up, they looked at their phones. They probably looked at X before they were reading emails from their staff. Some of them probably saw those first horrific images, and that was subsequently in their heads, say, as they uh, then got, you know, uh, classified briefings or spoke with larger teams or figured out what national policy should be. The effects of what people see online and like online conversation and spaces, I think, have a tad tangible influence now on global policymaking and on wartime decisions. I feel like I've seen the, you know, either the official Israel Twitter account or the official IDF Twitter account, you know, from from the perspective that I'm seeing it in a lot of ways getting back into a corner by a lot of posters online in a way that I hadn't seen them get bodied like that before, but also more specifically like you know, people will yell at politicians online, people will yell at corporations online, but it's been a very interesting move from, you know, trusting and reacting positively to more official accounts versus, oh, you know who has the best coverage right now? Pop Crave. That's been fascinating to see, and I th- wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yeah, I... First, I think it's important to note, just always be aware of the biases that we might bring as we're watching certain online conversation um, patterns. Because sometimes an actor may be using a platform, but they're not necessarily speaking to most of the audience on that platform. So as you said, the IDF Twitter account gets pretty consistently bodied. Like that's totally true. But I think for the IDF and Israeli messaging, they're much more interested in reaching a handful of American political elites versus like these broader circles. I would also though note, um, and there's, there's been a, a ton written on this, but the nature of Israeli public diplomacy around this war has felt uniquely disjointed to me, even more so than um, prior conflicts, even more so than prior conflicts where um, basically when Israel and the IDF examined their messaging strategies, they found serious flaws. I think a reason for that is that, well, first, the the immensity of the attack on Israelis, the fact that it really did has shaken Israeli public faith in their institutions, um, and it probably left it left the government reeling in a way that they haven't uh, with these other operations i look at these things and i i suspect that there have been many people pitching what they think are good ideas which then get run up the chain without all that much consideration and broadcast from these official israeli government accounts and so as a consequence yeah you the the public communication strategy has in many ways seem less coherent i'd say just as a result is setting yourself up to get uh yelled at by online leftists also perhaps part of the strategy absolutely that's what i was alluding to earlier um we see i've seen examples not necessarily from official israeli government accounts but certainly from israeli officials where they might say something with the intention of capturing um you know, the the most objectionable quote tweets, the person who thinks they're dunking on the official as they say something horrifically stupid and anti-Semitic. 
that's another at this point time tested uh twitter slash x strategy yeah i mean i i think about you know my official job <laughs> here at vice is is a, being a social editor that's really been my whole career and thinking about you know posting as engagement bait and in addition as we've been speaking something i've also thought about is how you know the idf as an institution you know you, a lot of the recruits are very young people are people who grew up on the internet or people who have been online who are very online um something that struck me a couple weeks ago is that the idf also launched a podcast during all of this and just having this realization of oh i can see what they're doing here they have a social strategy they have people whose job it is within the military which you know other governments other militaries definitely have this as well but it just struck me um seeing it all seemingly unfold during a conflict over a very short period of time everybody's launching podcasts now every it is a few years too late but uh best of luck to him but i i mean the just picking up on that thread emily the idf was really ahead of the curve of any other western military in thinking about the importance of social media communication and they they didn't start in this war or even a few years ago there was actually a mini revolution in the idf around 2010 this was after the 2009 operation cast lead where there was a broad awareness in israel this was a the last major ground occupation of gaza and there was a awareness across the israeli government or a feeling that they they basically lost the media war that they tried to stop press from reporting uh this meant the press had only been more critical of idf actions and at this point enough twitter and online conversation had existed that israel really felt they'd been on the losing side of things so around 2010 uh there were a group of essentially millennials uh very junior level officers who tried to push idf public communications in a, a different more active in, uh, direction especially online and the first results of that actually were seen in that that 2012 twitter war which we discussed earlier and that sort of lean forward posture has continued but that also comes under criticism because the more content you put out the more you say you try to uh be hip you know keep up with particular online trends adopt the same language of your users um that's also creating new points of vulnerability which your critics of which there are many will attack so it may be at the end of all this the idea of might come back to a more sort of restrained online posture but this you know debates within militaries about how to communicate to what extent uh that stuff is endless but especially in the idea just just actually one more point um i remember all the way back in 2012 seeing a really glitzy advertisement for service in the idf where it it shows a a whole team of um uh smiling draftees at computers and it says you know fulfill your draft requirement with graphic design or blogging and the message is that these were important function military functions that they in some ways were almost co-equal with other military operational roles every branch needs public uh, public affairs officers somebody's got to be answering those phones all right cyber listeners we're going to pause there for a break we'll be right back after this hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/spoken today. All right, cyber listeners, we are back on talking with Emerson Brooking about What's real and what's true? Uh, we've talked a lot about kind of IDF's social strategy. Uh, can we now talk about Hamas's? And I'm thinking specifically of Hamas as a separate entity from like broader 
uh, more humanitarian aligned, like Palestinian and, and uh, free Gaza movements. Definitely. So um, something else that really is clear in this, the social media elements of this war is that the, the war began on telegram, that the conversation and informational conflict has still been waged primarily on X, but um, Hamas, which does not have such a strong like public social media presence, has a robust presence on Telegram. And I guess Telegram, for folks who've used it less often, uh, Telegram is both an encrypted messaging service, but it also enables you to uh, very easily create broadcast groups where you or a handful of moderators can be uh, you know, sending messages that will reach tens or hundreds of thousands of people at once. And Telegram also has a famously loose content moderation policy. Way back in the day, the Islamic State used Telegram. Uh, Hamas and many other militant groups use it today. During Russia, Ukraine, both Ukrainian and Russian military units have regularly used Telegram. There are tons of reasons for why Telegram has a lax content moderation policy. Main reason is that Actually, we'll briefly down this rabbit hole. The founder of Telegram, Pavel Durov, was previously, I think, co-founder of uh, VContact, VK, which was the big Russian Facebook. Um, he got chased out of Russia by 2014. He had, in part, because he didn't want to turn over uh, private information to the Russian government. So he's taken a sort of a maximalist free speech privacy position, and that Position suffuses Telegram, which, as I understand, he still controls completely. So there's a reason why that's a popular platform and why it's it's unlikely to change in any meaningful way. So that's the platform Hamas was using when, in the first hours of October 7, the official Al-Qassam Brigade's account uh, posted a 10-minute a, a pre-recorded sort of declaration of war against Israel. And then within an hour, they were sharing the first images taken by fighters during the attack and the first videos soon thereafter so they were trying to get their um justification and then their content created from the account into public spaces as soon as possible because although it started on telegram obviously most people didn't see it on telegram they saw it on other platforms and that content wasn't spread by hamas then it was spread by people who were horrified at what hamas was doing this is the basis of terrorist communications. It's been really fascinating to do this job in the past like five, 10 years and watch telegram slowly take over, uh, as a first or like, it's the first source for things before it kind of gets disseminated out. And I'm not thought of it as, um, you're, you are creating your little broadcast community. Uh, you, you are, you have complete control over what you're going to say. Uh, and you don't have any control over what people are going to do with it, but that's beside the point, right? Um, so it, it's it has been fascinating to look at Telegram and to watch it evolve and kind of take over as the place for breaking news about conflict as Twitter has, uh, or X now, I guess, has kind of um, changed. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about I'm tired of talking about this guy, but as long as he continues to have billions of dollars and lots of power, we will have to. Um, how has Musk's Twitter takeover changed the way we report about conflict? Uh, and what have the what have his new incentive structures done to the way that this war is uh, talked about online? All right, time to get to Musk. Very quickly before we do, just uh, on, on on Telegram. The growth of Telegram, I think, is indicative of this broader trend, which we we really see among Gen Z users, where they're less interested in like a single pub shared online space. They've grown up in shared online spaces. They know they suck for a lot of reasons, like having smaller networks, more personal networks, um, a Discord server that you can start with some friends, or and then just eat, just as easily dissolve it and move elsewhere. Like that's much more appealing to them. So this growth of Telegram and these related like more peer-to-peer and, and channel distribution services is something that was always going to happen. Now, Elon Musk is almost certainly accelerating that by making X such a singularly unpleasant place to be. And if we talk about Elon Musk's role and X's role in the 
this war for a bit. Um, want to recognize that fog of war is an inevitable part of covering any conflict. Fog of war suffuses all social media platforms. Talking about war on social media is often dangerous because in the best circumstances, you can accidentally spread something that's not true, uh, information that may end up getting someone hurt or killed. That's the best case scenarios. But there's still a responsible way to run a platform when it's being used for this critical public function, and then there are irresponsible ways. And because Elon Musk, as he took control of the service, he, you know, repeatedly expressed, um, he, he, he held special criticism for things like the, the Twitter verification program, where say it had been an easy way to find journalists or to find people who were demonstrated useful sources of information. He, he's, expressed doubt in that he's expressed doubt in the uh media writ large he seems to think that you know anyone writing anything can do just as good a job as a you know a a deeply sourced journalist with 20 or 30 years of experience and vast networks on the ground so that those were his biases that he's taken into this war and main things he did were remove that verification program so instead of at a glance, being able to see if someone was a trustworthy source of information, um, you had no idea whatsoever. And in fact, those people, untrustworthy sources of information, were more inclined to buy that little verification badge to change their profile picture into something that made them look like a legitimate media outlet. And then the share the most salacious stuff possible, regardless of whether it was true or false. Why were they sharing that information? Why did they have those incentives? Uh, because of the other big thing that Musk did, which was this monetization program, where users are now directly rewarded for uh, in Twitter parlance views, but it's really impressions of particular posts. So as a result of that, you have you've made it much easier to impersonate people or to masquerade as someone to build the veneer of credibility, and then to do that in order to make money, in order to grab the content you think will be the most interesting and spread it as widely as possible. Of course, it doesn't matter if that content is true or not. And we've even seen cases where it seems um, in the war that people have shared things that were untrue, but then they've gone out of their way not to delete it, probably because they think it, the post won't be monetized if they delete it. So these, on top of a very complicated situation, must created this horrifically perverse incentive structure. And we're dealing with the consequences. So something that we had talked about uh, pre-show, and I think that this is a nice segue to it, is um, the relationship between social media content moderation and political expression, right? Musk says, uh, if you don't like the way he does things, you simply do not care for free speech. Um, can we get your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, there was a a joke among certainly the trust and safety community who've spent now sort of 20 years trying to figure out the relation between user safety, freedom of speech, harm of platforms, you know, trying to write policies which are protect individual users, but are as glo globally applicable as possible and respectful of speech rights. Anyway, there's that whole community. And the joke was watching Elon Musk tear everything down and then rebuild it piece by piece, kind of like a content moderation uh, policy speed run. And we have seen him, you know, many teams he fired, he now has a need to rehire for different compliance issues where speech norms are different in different parts of the world. But if you're running a global platform, you have to be cognizant of these things. Um, overall, though, I think I, I'm, I'm worried, very worried about freedom of expression on X, because despite Musk repeatedly saying he's a free speech absolutist. In reality, he's um, he's a uniquely pliable head of a major social media company. Basically, the last person he talks to, uh, whether it's Prime Minister Netanyahu or Ketur too, um, is the person he's going to listen to. And that's the specific person he's going to write policy for, even if it affects hundreds of millions of people. Turkey, I think, would be the biggest, most damning example. That's right. Uh, 
almost right out the gate after uh, acquiring then Twitter and, uh, you know, saying this big game, he was remarkably quick to uh, appease the Turkish government. He, he basically was taking steps in in this speech case, which Twitter and other social media platforms had like would not have considered had resisted for years. Um, there are all these norms that have been built up, like transparency reports that major companies put out. There's not a law that mandates a transparency, a takedown transparency report. These are reports that show which governments lodged how many takedown requests and how frequently companies complied with them. This is this, There's not a law that mandates that disclosure. It's just become a, a norm or a standard. That's This is another case where, uh, since Elon Musk took over, Twitter hasn't had one of these transparency reports. We no longer know um, how often governments are sending legal requests and how often Twitter's acceding to them. My educated guess would be that Twitter is folding a lot more frequently uh, than you'd expect from Musk free speech champion. Because as I mentioned, Musk is pliable, but then also the teams, legal teams who would help him fight this, who would actually help him defend his users, he cut all those people. Can we leave, let's leave Twitter behind for a moment. Uh, and never come back. Yes, and never come back. No, well, I mean, we'll say, we'll, me. we'll make a big deal about saying that we'll never come back to it. And then, you know, we'll wake up in the morning and we'll pick up our phone. And what's the first thing we'll look at? All right. Maybe I'm speaking for, I'm projecting a little bit. You're not wrong though. <laughs> um, so we talked about a little bit about this on the last show, uh, but it would be, it would be foolish for me to not ask. Uh, let's get into TikTok, the hot new social media platform. Uh, kids these days, they love the Bin Laden? Question mark. Very few kids these days love the Bin Laden. But a remarkable number of uh, elderly policymakers have discovered TikTok as a result of that. So the allegation in brief is that Osama bin Laden's letter to America went extremely viral on TikTok and that tens of thousands of TikTok teens were endorsing the letter. The letter, by the way, is... If you read it for the first time, it is remarkable in, um, I guess it, it's length and just in, um, the reasons that he gives for an attack. For many people who grew up in the shadow of 9-11, but thought of, you know, Al Qaeda and company just as, uh, uh, shadowy villains, actually reading why they engaged in this act of atrocity can be mind opening. But it doesn't mean that anything they say is right, and the letter is also virulently anti-Semitic. But of course, it was it was coming to the public for um, as a consequence of this this current Israel-Hamas conflict. Anyway, got sidelined a little, but that is the scandal in brief. In reality, it seems that there were a few TikTok users who put out the very stupid position that Osama bin Laden had a point. This was not. Tens of thousands of people or thousands of people, as most folks I've talked to think it was in the low dozens or less. Um, but other TikTok users discovered this. They saw in this idiocy a golden content opportunity because this was a real scandal. So they started cutting videos making fun of these folks. So it was still a scandal in TikTok. Then another day or two passes. And we have users on X uh, discover this, make their own super cuts of uh, all the dumb stuff happening on TikTok. And suddenly it's being talked about widely in the international media and in the halls of Congress. So it did become a big deal, but it became a big deal because everyone was rushing to condemn it, not because it was an organic trend. Once again, uh, Yashir Ali is at the root of all evil. Uh, online <laughs> i would say in this case i i don't think yasha really 
help folks get a good idea of what was going on. But having read everything about Yasher, <laughs> I do think other things he's elevating in this war are helpful. So I I it, give it a little give, bit more uh, grace. Give me an example before we before I dive into how moral panics work in Nyquil Chicken. Uh, give me an example of of something that he's elevating. That you think should be elevated. So I I need to go back and look at the feed, but I have seen examples, for instance, of him elevating uh, the perspectives of Palestinians, Palestinians in the diaspora who are facing, um, you know, threats to personal safety or bigoted attacks. Now. Um, he has a remarkably powerful platform and is very good at media. Often uses that for not helpful reasons, sometimes does. So I wanted to give him a little bit of credit. That's fair. We all contain multitudes. I actually wanted to dive in, uh, not on Yasha specifically, but on the existence of of the social media personality as, you know, a fountain of information. Um, I don't think it's news to anybody that you know, younger people tend to not watch cable news. They're not looking to see what Anderson Cooper has to say about X, Y, and Z. Um, I do flick on the cable news sometimes just to get a sense of what's being said and what my relatives might be hearing or what, you know, what the hell is going on today on CNN. But the way that I see a lot of my peers and my siblings and, you know, so on and so forth Getting news are from a lot of these internet personalities, whether they're on Twitter, uh, TikTok, or Instagram is where I've really seen this becoming a huge thing. During like the 2020 uprisings, I saw a proliferation of a lot of these accounts that I had never seen before um, that kind of marketed themselves as information collectives, um, sharing things generally unsourced, with a lot of statistics, with a lot of information, with very good graphic design that just started spreading around the internet like wildfire. And these really seem to be where I'm seeing a lot of younger people getting news versus, you know, traditional media that might be better sourced but is less trustworthy for a number of reasons, both, you know, understandable and less so. Have you been seeing a lot of that now? Um, yeah, what's your take on that? Unfortunately, absolutely. It's a very common format. Say having unsourced graphs or data, sometimes having snapshots of something stupid someone said on a different social media service, which may have been decontextualized. Um, this is actually, this really intersects with, or this casts light on how the design of certain social media platforms can really lend itself to this sort of content, right? Um, and on TikTok, for instance, it is very hard to direct people off of the platform, which means it's very hard to say back up what you're what you're saying. TikTok is very insular. Um, if you look at the sorts of younger audiences who consume politics and political news on Instagram, they may often be getting it, yeah, from from screenshots of graphs where the the uh, source has been cut. Um, they're also seeing things absent context. And that's another very sticky platform, which really resists sending people elsewhere. Um, what's also interesting is that quite often you might see screenshots of something that social media users said on one platform being widely circulated on another platform. That is especially and it's almost always in the context of, you know, look at this horrific thing this person said. Um, doesn't it make you outraged? Maybe you should go harass them. But you're never going to find a link back to what they said. You're never going to understand, you know, when or or why it was said. It's basically an example. Uh, these are all illustrations of very bifurcated sorts of communities kind of... Um, uh, getting outraged at each other. But really, this is an extension of the phenomenon we just discussed, the Osama bin Laden letter, where something that was a weird TikTok scandal became national and international news, simply because a, a different platform with a different design structure and very different user base um, discovered what was trending on another service. I hadn't thought about the 
the stickiness of the platforms, the insulated nature, the nature of them. But that is like a big part of, honestly, it's one of the reasons that one of the things that keeps me off of TikTok is that I hate being stuck within one area and not being able to like go out into another one. It also frustrates, it also really frustrates me with Facebook. Um, Facebook's entire design is meant to like keep you locked down in its ecosystem um, it doesn't want you following links to the outside, really. Uh, it, it would prefer everything be hosted internally. Um, and thought about that as like something that's leading to the bifurcation in, in like this niche nicheification of our internet spaces. And I suppose that that is what is part of what's happening. Yeah. Look, if we, we think about the the giant social media services, Twitter had been the one outlier. But another major thing that Musk has done, of course, is try to make the platform more sticky by, you know, alternately hiding links or, or throttling um, links to certain, you know, other social media platforms or news services. Across the board, we see social media is uh, pulling a fast one on us and becoming television again. We thought we escaped. In fact, we did create something like truly wondrous, like a a global community where everyone could talk to everyone, where anyone with a bright idea could launch a web service. I just also wanted to mention that it's wild that Facebook has come up as like a throwaway thought in this conversation. And just how, I don't know if far is the right descriptor there, but just how different things have become just in the past 10 years of social media, which is an eternity for social media. But at the same time, you know, it's it's wild how the way that we're talking about things now has switched platforms and switched almost, you know, audiences entirely. And we've been talking a lot about younger generations and younger users. But I think as we start to close out and talk about, you know, how to talk to our mothers about this, um, how are we seeing the generational divide play out or are we seeing one play out on social media talking about conflict and this conflict specifically? Gosh, I, I really think the generational divide comes to the fore here. You know, people often like to talk about or even have moral panics about the information literacy of, of Gen Z or now Gen Alpha. Um, but these generations have grown up natively using these services they might spread or believe dumb stuff, but they do have a high level of scrutiny for online services. But it's really the older generations who joined these platforms later who had a much more like credulous view of, um, you know, when someone shares something with you or is nice to you, they can't be lying to you, right? If someone is pro-Israel, like you're pro-Israel, um, pro-Palestinian, like you're pro-Palestinian, then why would they mislead you, right? There's um, a much greater susceptibility and vulnerability among older people to misinformation than to younger people. Um, and I, I think this war really brings it out because almost everyone has sort of this uh, preceding political position. Social media doesn't necessarily shape their politics, but they've brought those biases in that perspective into these new digital spaces and now they're communicating with each other about like some of the most horrific things that human beings can do to each other about violence about the mass killing of civilians of children of course tempers run hot of course mis and disinformation are rife it's something where even for very experienced um students of like war and social media, it's hard to find ground truth. To expect that someone in their 60s or 70s who joined online services in earnest a few years ago um, is going to be able to find truth in this sort of environment is, I mean, it's it's too much to expect. It's impossible. So we have to do our best to tell our mothers um, to just understand that even if you're inclined to believe something you see online, that most people engaging on these services are trying to mislead you. They are trying to pull you in one direction or another. They don't care about the truth. They care about getting you on their side. But your time and attention is more valuable than that. So 
just reflect a bit more before you believe that one thing. Understand that, um, unfortunately, you're a target. The internet's still great for a lot of stuff, but it is not great for understanding war. Emerson Brooking, thank you so much for coming onto the show and walking us through this. Thank you both very much for having me. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>